Hey, hey, everybody. If you're listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of this episode of The Shift with Doug McKinty. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to the show in order to access the full feature-length versions of the podcast, as well as have access to the members' forum, where we discuss potential topics and interviews and dive deep into the overall concept of The Shift. For only six bucks a month, not only do you get the full-length episodes, but also an opportunity to co-create with me, your host, Doug McKinty, the future of the show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com or patreon.com backslash the shift and sign up today in order to help make the shift possible. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on January 15th, 2022, and features American-born journalist Riley Wagaman, now based in Moscow. Riley has published his work in journals such as Anti-Empire and Russian Faith, and previously worked for Press TV, RT, and Russia Insider. He currently and consistently posts under the moniker Edward Slav Squat on a Substack blog of the same name. Though, given the typical government corporate narrative, you might fear Riley is a Russian or Iranian disinformation agent carefully implanted to influence the unwary American observer, a careful reading of his work clearly shows that nothing could be further from the truth. His insightful analysis from first-hand experience provide in-depth coverage from an unbiased point of view. Given that the heavy beat of war drums for Russia are once again sounding over the continuing conflict brewing in eastern Ukraine, Riley's insider interpretation becomes more poignant by the day. His nuanced perspective utilizes a sense of real politic that paints a comprehensive picture without falling prey to the idealizations often imposed by American media pundits and repeated ad nauseum throughout the mainstream and social media landscape. While some praise Vladimir Putin as an ardent Russian nationalist standing against the forces of Western imperialism and global corporate capital, and others vilify him as a vicious dictator with close ties to a powerful Russian oligarchy, Riley remains level-headed in his interpretation of events. His writings provide balanced analysis of the Russian landscape, along with the facts to back up his realistic assertions. Over the course of this interview, we will discuss a history of post-Soviet Russia that includes Putin's actions in the Ukraine, Crimea, and Syria that many will not have heard behind the wall of anti-Russian propaganda so prominent in the Western media today. Conversely, we will also take a deep dive into the Russian COVID response, including lockdowns, mandates, and dubious connections to the World Economic Forum that many hardcore Russophiles refuse to acknowledge. Stay tuned for this nuanced discussion concerning Russian history and current events, presenting an interpretation you will rarely find within online echo chambers or mainstream media outlets. Find out more about the work of Riley Wagaman at www.edwardslavsquat.substack.com. As always, find out more about The Shift, sign up for the newsletter, or subscribe for feature-length versions of the show at www.theshiftnow.com. Look for The Shift with Doug McKenty on Odyssey, Rockfin, and YouTube, or any of your favorite podcast hosting sites. Connect with me on Facebook at Doug McKenty, Twitter at D McKenty, and I am also happy to announce the creation of my own blog, The Populist Papers, which is also on Substack. Without further ado, I'd like to thank journalist Riley Wagaman for agreeing to this interview, and thank you for helping to make The Shift. 
Hey, everybody, and welcome to this 104th episode of The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKinty. I'm happy to be joined today by Riley Wagerman. He is a Moscow-based American journalist. He's done some work for RT uh, and other outlets, and I am really curious. He's been writing on his blog under the pseudonym Edward Slavsquat uh, about a lot about what's going on with COVID uh, in, in Russia, and uh, I was actually disappointed to find out that it's so similar to what's happening here in the United States. I had heard uh, that they had tried, for example, to push the QR code thing in Moscow and that a lot of uh, citizens of Moscow were really you know, against it, upset about it, a lot of pushback about it. And I was hoping that maybe Russia was an example of uh, a government that wasn't going to be pushing these mandates as hard as apparently, uh, according to Riley's work, they are. So we're going to have an in-depth conversation, uh, a broader conversation about Russia and the U.S. in general, about Putin uh, in general. And then we're going to focus in on on some of the the COVID news that's coming out of uh, Russia today. So uh, thank you so much, Riley, for coming on the show. Do you want to just let people know a little bit about your background and and a little bit about what you've been writing uh, on the blog recently? Yeah, so um, I'm an American originally from Southern California, but I've lived all over the States. And I got my started my writing career, I guess if you can call it that, when I uh, after college, I worked in Washington, D.C. as a political blogger slash journalist and did all sorts of bizarre gigs like I did movie reviews for the uh, Washington Times and like just anything, you know, to, to make ends meet. And um, I really just got disillusioned with the whole scene. I mean, it was so I was young. I was like 22. I just it was so it's such a cynical place, Washington, D.C., you know, I was like so disgusted with it. So I just packed up moved to Central Europe. I was in uh, Moravia, Southern Czech Republic for about a year and just loafing, just being total, total waste of human life, basically, you know, <laughs> doing nothing productive, but having a great time, like best, best time of my life, hands down. And then, but then I was like, I gotta like do something. <laughs> I just can't sit in Moravia and drink Pilsner all day. So right. I moved to, uh, I found a job teaching English in Bashkortostan, which is a republic in Russia. Um, it's like right near the Ural region and um, actually close to Kazakhstan, which has been in the news recently. So mm -hmm. anyway, I uh, taught English a bit in Bashkortostan. And then I, this was right around the time when uh, Maidan started in Ukraine and the whole Ukraine crisis and Donbass. And it was a huge thing. And, you know, the reunification with Crimea. So I was in rush for all that and it was totally freaky uh and it sort of got me interested in thinking about and writing about russia because i was in russia and people were talking about russia and i was like wow this is maybe i should do this you know mm -hmm. so i ended up moving to moscow and uh, getting back into journalism so i did a few gigs i was with iran's press tv i was their moscow correspondent for a bit um i worked as a uh, for RT International for their website for about four years, and I recently left that position, and I'm doing my my blog. So, like you said, I'm just trying to <clears throat> talk about things that I think are really important that nobody seems to be talking about, at least in in, in the English language. I, I haven't seen any coverage of what I'm discussing anywhere, so it's so interesting to me that no one's talking about this stuff. Right. I mean. The news that we're getting in the U.S. about what's going on with Russia, I guess I want to start 
Uh, I think some people might be listening to this and hear that you've worked for uh, RT and Press TV and go, well, clearly, you know, you're a, some kind of a purveyor of Russian disinformation. What was your relationship uh, working in journalism with those two outlets? Did you find, I mean, you know, people are going to say RT, of course, is state TV, you know, state media, state run, state run media, and they're pushing Russian propaganda. Um, what do you feel like is... In terms of being a journalist, um, did you feel pressured or censored or what was the perspective from those news outlets in terms of just trying to get, you know, facts out or unbiased journalism as opposed to the kind of news that you're seeing come out of the United States right now? I mean, it's such a great question. And the reality is that when you work with these organizations, you, you what you basically have to do to justify is you're saying, I understand that I'm only going to be able to present a limited scope of perspective here. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the topics that are most important to me make it worth it. So at the time when I was working for Press TV, for example, Syria was a big thing. Mm-hmm. And of course, Iran was really involved in Syria. And the way that I justified it was, I personally think that Russia and Iran are on the right side in Syria, and I have no problem relaying their perspective to the English-speaking world. And I was happy to lend my credibility to that. Now, is that journalism or activism? It's probably activism. It's probably activism, if you want to be honest about it. Uh, and But, you know, I don't think that anybody, if people are going to RT and Press TV and think that they're getting the unadulterated truth, I mean, guys, I don't know what to tell you. Like, that's just not how it works. I mean, that's just not how the media works. You're going to have to, you're going to have to say, okay, what, what do the Russians say? What do the Iranians say? What do these guys say? And just make up your own mind. And unfortunately, there's really not that many news sites anymore that you can go to where you're going to get like a really, really cutthroat journalist who is just going to tear apart everyone. You know, yeah. it, it just doesn't exist anymore. I mean, I can't think of a single journalist just doing that like on, on an international level. I, I don't know of one, really. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, you could basically say I was just a, I was a mercenary in some sense. And anybody who works with these organizations are. And it doesn't mean that they're bad people or they're liars. It just means it's, you know, yeah, you're not like going to be able to talk about human rights abuses in Iran if you're working for press TV. <laughs> it's like, that's not how it works. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, one of the interesting things for me, I think, um, because especially since the collapse of the Soviet Union, I have found more and more that you know, the difference between the United States and the journalism in the United States, and even the journalism, say, in communist China, or in Russia, or Iran, I mean, it's all infused with propaganda. I think Americans have this concept that their news that they're receiving here is somehow part of this free press, and that they're getting this unbiased perspective compared to, say, you know, RT or press, press TV, where, um, you know, they're clearly that's just Russian propaganda or this kind of state propaganda. And um, I just, you know, especially since COVID, it's like, my God, people, can't we wake up and see that this, like you're talking about, like, where is there real uh, journalism, objective journalism in the world today at any of <laughs> these two sites? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just to be clear too, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm just sort of almost like confessing, you know, like I was, de- I mean, I wouldn't, 100% endorse any organization that I've ever worked for, really. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if, if you're if you're coming from the perspective like, oh, it's RT, they're like so much more evil than you know CNN or whatever. I mean, that's just also not how it works. I mean, 
everybody's got their angles. I mean, CNN's probably pushing whatever, like their Pfizer press releases and weird stuff like that. So it's, right. you got to be careful, you know, like information is being used to manipulate you and, you know, mold you. And you should just be aware of that. And everybody's doing it. So. Right. I mean, at least from my perspective here in the United States on RT, first of all, a lot of American journalists that work for RT here, um, I think they have a little bit of a, a broader scope of issues that they can tackle from different perspectives, whereas at the American uh, corporations, the corporate news, you know, if you don't toe the line, then you're you're out. Um, so and then, you know, I've actually done some work because RT is often considered to be quote unquote propaganda in terms of looking at, you know, primary source material and this and that. And I find that at least we're getting this different perspective and the reporting is actually pretty decent. So it's important for people to, if you, well, whenever you ingest any kind of media to, to double check those, those sources and find out, you know, with an understanding of what the bias is, you know, find out for yourself what you think is actually going on at the end of the day. (laughs) Well, and you know why that's also important is because it's always, you know, so much of media today, it's not that people are lying. It's lies by, by omission, right? They just yeah. don't tell you things. They're telling you the truth. They're just not, they're just leaving out stuff that might change your mind, right? Or might make you realize that, okay, this is true, but there's this is a really complicated situation. You know, I should think more deeply about this. So that's where RT and Press TV do have value because are you going to like learn about, you know, why Assad might not have you so-called gassed his people like in, in on CNN? No, they're not going right. to tell you the other side of that story. So I think it's a totally, you know, this is valuable information that people should also weigh, you know, and taking into account where it's coming from. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, at that time, that time that you're talking about, I mean, we can get into both Syria and Ukraine a little bit here, I think, to to kind of get this broader picture. I actually thought, like, for example, when Russia came into Syria with the air support, that that was a brilliant move. And that that probably saved a lot of Syrian lives because the U.S. at the time, you know, they were preparing. Obama had his red line. The U.S. was preparing for full scale invasion. It would have been a complete disaster. And I, you know, I remember thinking, despite the propaganda that I was getting from the American press here, that like, wow, I, that, you know, and that and we'll get because as we discussed before the interview, this is a very nuanced conversation, but I actually thought like Putin really, you know, this was a good thing, you know, and I was happy that to see that Putin kind of played that so strategically in support uh, of the Syrian people in that, in that instance. And I personally, after my, um, you know, I just find from my point of view that it's obvious, even though, gosh, it's amazing how much we hear about Assad, the evil dictator here. Right. Uh, You know, he's been he was pushing democracy in Syria from the time that he took over from his father. And then he actually held elections in the middle of it all. I think it was 2014 when they did establish a democratic constitution. And he did have elections and he was elected as president and they did have international observers, you know, watching the election. It seemed pretty legit to me. So I feel like he's actually, despite what most Americans probably think, uh, he's been a liberal reformer in Syria and he's been unfairly attacked um, by the United States in terms of, uh, the way he's portrayed in the media here to justify a lot of the interventions in the Middle East that the U.S. has been engaged in. 
Um, do you want to talk about your perceptions with the whole Syria thing and maybe talk about how you feel Putin handled that situation? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a, a whole lot to say about it. I'm not an expert on Syria by any means, mm-hmm. even though I was working for Press TV. But sure. I mean, I was more, you know, my time at Press TV was more about like the relationship between Iran and Moscow, like during the whole thing. So it's much more like this official talked to that official. They agreed to this, blah, blah, blah. But, uh-huh. you know, what I would say about Syria, it's like. I think no matter how you look at it, like, how could you, I, I just feel like no matter how you look at it, the pragmatic solution was obviously to keep Assad in power, even if you don't like him for whatever reason. It's like, it was literally Assad or fanatics, like right. literally, you know, and it would have been absolutely devastating. And I'm not saying that um, Russia and Iran you know, don't have blood on their hands. I'm sure, I'm sure that they've killed civilians. Like it's a hundred, I'm absolutely positive they have. Mm-hmm. But for one thing, I'm also sure that the United States has killed a lot of civilians in Syria, like probably a lot of them. Right. And obviously, obviously the U.S. backed, I mean, it's, I think it's pretty much well documented now. I mean, you have, you know, the CIA and the Pentagon giving weapons to these freaks, you know, and sending them into Syria and through Turkey. I mean, it was a huge thing. I mean, it was a total clusterfuck. Right. <laughs> what I would say, though, is that, you know, while I think that Russia did the right thing, it wasn't for altruistic reasons. Sure. It was because Russia has very, very severe strategic, like, interests in Syria. It has the uh, Tartus naval base. It's its only access uh, to the Mediterranean, really. And so if you want to sort of juxtaposition Russia's actions in Syria, look at what they did in Libya. They did nothing. They let they let they basically let Libya fall to the same sort of you know scam, the same plot that Syria was being you know subjected to. Sure. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. It's not that Russia is like fighting for you know humanity and the greater good. It's like Russia has a line where they're like, okay, we really don't want Syria to fall because we have really really burned best in this country for a lot of reasons, and you can't take it. But, you know, if you're just like some random country, they're not going to care. They're not going to stop you. Sure. So that's important to keep in mind. Well, and then let's touch upon um, the Crimea thing and the Ukraine thing, which is now heating up again. Um, Because I remember kind of during that same time period, I mean, we saw clearly that the United States has been engaged in this color revolution in Ukraine, which I thought was... Uh, subversive. And then, uh, you know, the Western half or the Eastern half of the Ukraine, excuse me, is all Russian speaking. The Ukraine has traditionally been part of Russia. So, you know, I actually had compassion at the time for like, we're seeing, and of course, we've got the United States pushing NATO in the Ukraine and pushing NATO closer and closer to to Russia, which was a promise that was made that they would not do. So, you know, again, uh, I just understand where Putin is coming from in terms of like, hey, you know, you guys are pushing our boundaries here. Why, you know, if I if I push back a little bit or if I put troops here or, you know, I think there was probably some aid going to Western Ukraine or Eastern Ukraine at the time from Russia. I'm not sure you could tell your perspective on that. Um, but just to kind of see what you're framing as someone who was actually living in Moscow or living in Russia at the time, uh, what was your perception of that whole situation? Well, I mean, it was, there was, people were totally 
overjoyed when Crimea rejoined Russia because I mean it yeah. was basically I mean it's an it's historically Russian territory, ethnically Russian. I mean it's just it's just part of Russia. It just was and always has been. And uh, that's just the reality that people are going to have to accept. And I don't think I just don't have I just don't understand why anyone would be like, oh no, it's like really Ukraine, even though nobody who lives there. I mean, okay, there's there's a minority of people who probably want to be part of Ukraine, but it's a minority, and so is this. Do we get right. to have any democratic say in where we, you know, what country we're part of? And of course, people will make these excuses, but I mean, come on, it's just they're just being they're just nitpicking and being stupid. So I think that Crimea is just like not really even up for discussion. It's part of Russia. It's always been part of Russia. Mm-hmm. I don't see the issue here. And the they situation, did, yeah. Well, I just wanted to mention, because I looked into this as well, I mean, they did have an election there. And in the United States press, they tried to say, you know, Russian forces were influencing the election or somehow it was twisted or whatever. But, you know, 90 percent or it was a huge number of people in the Crimea that voted to join Russia. And as you say, ethnically and historically, it's always been part of Russia. You know, I, I just, again, feel like the dominant narrative that people are getting in the press about it, like, like Russia, you know, invaded and took over this part of the yeah, country yeah, which is, is completely off yeah. base. Yeah. It's totally off base. And you know, about the elections, that's like a whole, it's like a whole debate that's even still going on. Like how legitimate was the referendum? Uh-huh. I don't know. This is what I would say. Like Russian elections, historically, not that great. Sure. Like in anywhere, just like in the United States. Yeah, so, exactly. Not, I mean, knock on, any any modern election is like I'm willing to be like all right I don't know guys but this is what I would say even if the elect even if the numbers the referendum wasn't legit just go to Crimea and like talk to people like I have friends there and they're like why are people trying to pretend like Crimea is occupied territory you can just walk down the street and ask anyone whether you want to be part of Russia and Ukraine they're like obviously I want to be part of Russia it's not even a question yeah now there's like it gets more complicated because, unfortunately, when they joined uh, Russia, there's now all these sanctions. There's problems with banking. There's like a lot of it's it's tricky, and there's a, a lot of people who are like pretty pissed off because there's been economic problems for a number of reasons. But it's not necessarily <clears throat> Russia's fault for that. And people still, and as far as I know, are still really happy being you know rejoining Russia. So right. That's Crimea for me. Uh, the situation in Donbass is a little bit more tricky, in my opinion. And I say that as someone, I, I took two trips to Donetsk when I was working um, uh, <clears throat> as a journalist. I guess it was in 2015. So this was right after, um, I believe, the first Minsk like ceasefire agreement was signed or whatever they call it, if I remember correctly like April 2015. And what I found so interesting about my visit there was that while it was clear to me that uh, people in Donetsk and Donbass and and that region were obviously didn't want, they opposed the regime in Kiev. They had been horribly abused by these, you know, many of these, many of these guys who came in to uh, Donbass were these, you know, punitive battalions these like far right right sector guys with you know uh you know like nazi regalia like on their you know 
uniforms and stuff. Right. Really creepy guys. I mean, not right. all of them, but some of them were. Some of them were real fanatics. All of that aside, they were like, we really feel abandoned. We feel like we're being used as this, as this buffer between Russia and Ukraine. We didn't get the same sort of support and treatment that Crimea got, even though we're ethnically Russian. And the reality is like, People might, this might be like really controversial to say, but it's actually quite accurate. What ended up happening in Donbass is that you had a lot of really colorful, uh, charismatic, very genuine rebel leaders, like in, uh, you know, uh, Donetsk and also Lugansk. Like, uh, what's his, the president Zakharchenko, right? That was his name. They were all assassinated. And the reality is that people blame that on Kiev, but there's very, very strong evidence to think that if it happened, if Kiev was behind it, Moscow had full knowledge. The reason being is because these guys were just out of control. They couldn't be controlled. They were too independent, and they wanted more dependable leaders in Donbass. And so the reason why, that might sound crazy, but the current president of uh, the Donetsk People's Republic, this guy, Denis Pushilin, if I remember correctly, is basically this sort of uh, United Russia apparatchik guy. So United Russia is like Putin's party. And he just got his membership card. And, you know, it's basically Moscow just making sure that there's no funny business. You know, they have complete control over the situation. And when I was in there, when I was in Donbass, there was always these weird dudes in black following me around. Huh. You know, like you could tell the place was crawling with with FSB like spooks, crawling with it. Right. And I'm not saying that it was there was like tons of Russian troops there, but it's clear that Ru Moscow didn't want its presence to be really known, but also didn't want a fully independent Donbass, but also didn't want like any trouble, you know. And so you can say pragmatically they're playing this really delicate game, but it really screwed over the people living in Donbass because they've been living in this horrible condition for, what is it now, like six years, where they're, they're not really a, a country. They don't really have any good trade relations with anyone. Uh, you know, just recently, they were, start, they were able to start exporting products directly to Russia. For years, they weren't even allowed to do that. It's like very, very strange. And another thing I'll say about this, because I'm sort of, getting off into weird tangents, but when I was in Donbass, I spoke to a Ukrainian journalist who was very, very pro-Donbass, very, very pro-Donetsk you know, Donetsk People's Republic, and he told me something really interesting, which was that, uh, I guess it was in the summer, like when the whole conflict started, and there was these, you know, basically when there was this little war that took place in East Ukraine, the uh, Donbass forces had pushed their way to Mari Mariupol, which is like this uh, coastal like port city they basically could have walked into this city and taken it they pulled out and the reason this is what i was told by i believe a really reliable source was that there's a very very powerful oligarch in ukraine this guy named uh renat akmetov hmm. and he has very like a lot of business dealings in this city and if it had fallen to the rebels the uh or whatever you want to call them i mean Whatever you, whatever name you want to use, it would have basically been under sanctions. It wouldn't have been a legit place to do business. So basically, he decided. He said, "I will pay pensions to all the pensioners in the Donetsk People's Republic if you pull out of Mariupol." 
And so he's basically bankrolling like the social services of Don Bass right. to keep them out of his business, you know, his, his port. And, and Renat Akhmetov lives in Kiev, or he did for a long time. And, and you can make the argument that the situation in Ukraine is basically just, it's an oligarch war, you know? Sure. And there's a yeah. lot of shady oligarchs on both sides. It's, so, again, I'm, I'm sort of like getting onto these weird little tangents, but my point is it's like, unfortunately, Ukraine is just like full of these really creepy oligarchs who do really creepy things. And it's, it's not, I'm not taking, I'm not saying that I like the regime in Kiev at all. I don't at all. But it's just, you just need to look at it with a little bit more nuance and realize that a lot of innocent people are suffering for no apparent reason. And like, theoretically, Russia could be doing a lot more and they're just not, you know? Right. So, well, I mean, I think one for sure it's nuanced and I don't think Americans uh, are getting a lot of the, that nuanced information when they're making their decisions about what's going on there. Um, and um, two, I think there's a lot of, I mean, there is a lot of geopolitical and strategic, I mean, there's a lot of resources in Ukraine, right? And then we're talking about oil pipelines and natural gas pipelines that the U.S. is invested in. And Russia, you know, is trying to get its its resources into uh, Europe. And so then you've got the oligarchs, I think, in Ukraine that are vying for a piece of this action. And then you've got this larger picture where the U.S. and Russia are really fighting over resource control in terms of yeah. uh, these fossil fuels that are going to, you know, the getting into the European market. The U.S. wants to kind of stop that. And the U.S. is pushing, um, pushing NATO farther eastward towards the Russian border, which is making Russia nervous. Um, and so it's a it's a way more complicated issue than people are really comprehending from my perspective here in the United States, um, I guess maybe you could, you could kind of talk about that. Cause I, you know, what I think ultimately is that I think that the U S is being the aggressor. I, I actually feel like, um, when I, when I do see that they've broken that promise about pushing NATO, I mean, from my point of view, once the Soviet union fell, they should have disbanded NATO and that should have been yeah. the end of it all. Yeah, right. And, yeah. And so it's like the fact that they're even, keeping NATO going, you know, trying to get the Ukraine into NATO, Turkey into NATO, you know, expanding this whole thing and pushing it towards uh, Russia's border. I mean, this is very aggressive. And this is when you see, you know, Putin starting to move troops around and posturing in this way, but also, you know, and the, the term real politic comes to mind, because I think this is where Putin fits in. I'm not trying to say that he's like a perfect guy <laughs> by any means. <laughs> But he's playing this larger strategic game. Uh, and I mean, really, at the end of the day, there's oligarchs in Russia and oligarchs in the United States that are probably really behind all of this, too. Like, how, how much are the quote unquote democracies really fighting for the freedom of the people in the Ukraine right. here? Right, right. So, OK, I want to I, I think you're really on the right track. I really agree with everything cool. you just said. To add to that, just to give my perspective on the time I've been here, um, you know, Unfortunately, more and more, I have to admit this. I, you know, when I look at the situation between the the tensions between NATO and Russia, which I agree. I mean, objectively, you just have to say that NATO has been the aggressor. I mean, I still, I don't see how you could not. Yeah, admit. right. You just can't not admit that. That being said, the aggressor towards what, and that's where it gets a little bit more confusing because, mm -hmm. you know, 
the way I see it personally more and more, especially when COVID hit, was that these conflicts really aren't about like protecting, it's not necessarily the Russian government protecting the Russian people from NATO. It's like the extremely corrupt, entrenched elite in Russia who like control everything, don't mm. want to give their stuff the elite, corrupt you know, entrenched elite in the West. Right. <laughs> and, it's, uh, and it's just like, it's just oligarch wars. It's just an oligarch tug of war. And these guys are just like sociopaths who just want everything, you know? And in a lot of these guys, I mean, I really think that we're starting to see this more and more. And they're like pulling the curtain back. They're just showing, there's, they're not even trying to hide it anymore, is that there are people in the world, powerful people in the world, I really truly believe, believe this, that have visions or what they want humanity to look like, you know, right. in 10 or 20 years. And and in a way, this is just part of that same scam. You know, it's like, I'm a rich, powerful dude, and I want this, and I want to see this happen, and I don't care. Yeah, like, I just don't care about countries or nations or people. I want more, and I want my vision. And, you know, I'm not talking about people ne even necessarily sitting in a smoky room, you know, plotting the destruction of, you know, humanity. It doesn't even have to get that conspiratorial it's more just like right i have i have interests your interests interfere with my interests this is just business who cares if we kill some you know plebs like let the serfs die no one cares right and so for example i read there's a really funny I, I should pull this article up and send it to you it's quite good there was a recent political scientist here in russia who was talking about the the tensions in ukraine and he was like all right if we're gonna have a war in ukraine like, of course, we agree. NATO has been, there's tensions with NATO. NATO's been very aggressive. But if we're going to have a war in Ukraine, let's uh, create a special battalion made up of all the sons and daughters of Russia's richest oligarchs, and they go in first yeah. wave. <laughs> <You know? laughs> let's, let's do that see, here, too. Let's yeah. See, let's see how quickly they sign that, like, ceasefire agreement or whatever, right. you know? Because I, I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. I mean, who's who's paying in blood and for what? Like, what does the rush? What does the average Russian really have to gain here? At, at a certain right. point, I mean, it might sound that might sound scandalous to say, but I don't think it is. And the same goes for your average American who gets exactly. into grabbing a gun. And I think that more and more people need to realize, like, when you're talking about Russia and you want to say, like, I don't support NATO, I have solidarity solidarity with Russia, I really sympathize with that. But you should recognize that just because, you know, you don't like NATO doesn't necessarily mean you have to support the Russian government because the Russian government in many ways is playing the same game, you know? So people just have to look at this not through such a narrow lens and just try to find like the humanity in it, you know? Like, what am I, what do I really support? What do I really want? I want to, uh, I mean, I absolutely agree with that, actually. I mean, I wish more and more people would just realize that you know, we, the people here in the United States and, and we, the people in Russia are, are, have way more in common, or we, the people in Iran or Syria or any of these places, right? We have way more in common than we do, uh, you know, have these differences. And most of us don't really care. I mean, I remember hearing about that same time, that 2014, the Sir when the Syria thing was really heating up, that the people of Russia were you know the scared they were scared shitless frankly because they were thinking that there might be a u.s invasion i mean the propaganda here got so hot there for you know six months that it was like are we going to have a full-scale war with russia and why 
why would we do that to the people of right? You know, what is the point of all of this? We have to be looking at these larger, um, you know, the impulses of the oligarch class and why everyone is being manipulated into these certain directions. Did you, as someone who was there at the time, I mean, were you feeling that heat, you know, was it like, my God, what's going on here? Yeah. Well, I mean, you, it was so, it would be, it was so easy. I mean, to just get drawn into these, you know, sort of vast narratives, you know, where it's like, oh, we must like defend the, you know, Crimea. And then of course it's on the American side. It's like, we must defend Ukraine from the aggressors and people just get so, and it's so easy to do. And I'm not criticizing anyone, but people get so invested in these overarching narratives that at the it on many levels just don't really correlate to anyone's best interest unless you're like a oligarch basically <laughs> like, right <laughs> you know, in a lot of in a lot of ways you just you just don't really have a horse in this race and and i would say like there are specific conditions where that's not the case like i think that Crimeans definitely had a horse in this race and and in donbass i mean of course if you're gonna have some crazy right winger with from kiev you know shooting up your neighborhood like that's not a guy on my team but a lot of people like getting like heavily invested in stuff where they should more be concerned with like we should just not be like we we just have to find a way to you know not allow this never-ending like you know boxing match to continue and like just get these people to chill out you know so (laughs) i don't know it's it's tough though. It's really tough. And you, and obviously, I mean, I have tremendous sympathy with all the people in Donbass and Crimeans and with Americans too. I mean, think of all the poor Americans who have been duped into going, basically committing, like going abroad and doing horrible things and they were brainwashed, you know, yeah. it's really sad. Young kids. I mean, I, I've known some of them. It's really right. tragic. And they come back to the States and they're all messed up, have PTSD and blow their brains out. Like we're just really, we're hurting each other in such horrible ways. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) You know, it is, it is so true. Every once in a while, you got to take a step back and be like, what is really going on here? How they can get the average person. I mean, we're all humans. uh, How they can get us to do these horrible things to each other um, without. Uh, you know, basically in service to these upper classes who are having these resource wars, ultimately. Um, I want to spend, you know, the funny thing is, I feel like I'm actually kind of setting Putin up as a good guy just to, for the framing. And then we're going to get into no some, problem. Of, no problem. some of the more recent stuff because, and then, and then try to try to create a more realistic view. But what is, you, you know, I guess my perception is that after the fall of the Soviet Union and under Boris Yeltsin, American comp I mean, the American corporate system just went into Russia and started raping. I mean, you know, from my perception, the country for all those resources that were there started making super money. And this is how I frame kind of the big picture with Russia is that um, during that time, you know, it was a free for all. It was like the U.S. had won the Cold War and they were reaping the spoils of of the, you know, of, of the conquest, essentially. And then Putin steps in and he says, you can't do this anymore. You know, sorry, guys. And granted, he probably ended up giving a lot of those resources to Russian oligarchs and creating this whole Russian oligarch system. But um, 
I guess, you know, to kind of justify it, at least it was, so he was nationalistic about it. At least all that money wasn't going to the American oligarchs, you know, that, that had been plundering the system at the time. And, um, and so what's the feeling about that? And then, I mean, how popular is Putin in the Soviet Union right now? And what's the, you know, what's the feeling in the Soviet Union about, say, you, you know, is Putin a, a dictator? Uh, does he crush uh, opposition movements? Uh, is there a lot of censorship, you know, given this background context? Um, well, just general, I mean, I would say, you know, I, I think that Putin's, in many ways, I think that Putin has been a pretty pragmatic leader for Russia for, for many years. I mean, especially when he took over from Yeltsin. I mean, that being said, of course, like, a, you know, a rock could probably rule Russia better than Putin. You know? yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's like, <laughs> at least he wasn't, a rock won't be like a deranged alcoholic. But, um, yeah. you know, the thing, though, about Putin is, and I think that you probably, you probably, I agree with sort of what you said in passing there was, Putin did sort of clean up. He brought law and order back to Russia. He, in many ways, he restored sort of Russians and the Russian sense of, you know, national pride and dignity, which of course is extremely valuable for any nation or people. The problem though, is that in my opinion, and I think that this is becoming increasingly obvious is that the way this was done was not so much that you, you know, return the resources and the wealth of Russia back to the people, but just find oligarchs who won't rape Russia as much, you know, like, yeah, right. There's still a lot of raping going on, but now it's a Russian and they're like, they'll be a little bit nice about it. But for example, I mean, you have a guy like Anatoly Chubias who has been, he was, he's like the godfather of Russian privatizations. He's like one of the worst oligarchs ever. Like maybe the like when you think Russian oligarch, you should think Chubias. This guy has been he was Yeltsin's like chief of staff or something like that. And he's still in power. He's like best friends with Putin. And mm-hmm. he runs all these companies that are state owned. He gets them, he like is given them as gifts and runs them into the ground, steals people's pensions. I mean, he's a total criminal. And he's just allowed to run rampant. And actually Funny enough, he just gave this, uh, I just saw this Russian media report about how Chubias was like praising Bill Gates's latest book. Like, Bill Gates is a genius. I love Bill Gates. Like, it's really creepy, you know. Of All course, guys, yeah. I just, don't, yeah. I just don't trust them. But so it's really, again, you just need a lot of nuance with Putin. And maybe, you know, we want to, tr- maybe we should translate, uh, transition into COVID stuff. But unfortunately, yeah. Putin hasn't been that great when it comes to COVID. And it's sad because if Putin was the guy that people think he is, this would have been such an amazing opportunity for him to dunk so hard on like the West. Right. He had so many opportunities to be like, I'm not going to commit economic suicide. I'm not going to lock my people down. I'm not going to treat them like dirt. But that didn't happen, actually. Yeah. I was so disappointed. You know, there was a part of me because I understand 
the nuance. I understand the real politic. And so I'm always pretty pessimistic about, you know, guys like Putin or guys like Trump. And when they're saying they're fighting the system and, you know, so many people, you know, here in the United States on the right will get on the bandwagon and be like, yeah, these guys are going to make the the change that we've been looking for. And then it's like, no, 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 they're not. Um, but I do want to, I do want to make the transition into the COVID thing because I know that's been the, the, what you're, what you're working on currently. But, um, I, I want to touch in on this Trump Putin thing because that's so much of the perception that surrounds, uh, the way most Americans see it now, because we got so much, and I was just, I don't even know. I mean, I looked into the, the Russian disinformation, you know, campaign and the, the Trump, uh, Putin collusion to steal the election. And none of that, I mean, that to me was just a, a phenomenal American propaganda campaign against the American people. Like they were just pushing this narrative that they had almost zero evidence from the beginning could ever have been a reality. And then ultimately, after like years of being hammered with this and, con- you know, congressional investigations that cost millions and millions of dollars and they came up with nothing and it was just like my god but people still i think cling especially if they're you know in their mind a trump supporter then they want to set putin up as this good guy and they're fighting against this propaganda but then you know it just gets into um this whole left-right paradigm battle in the United States where the liberals hate Putin and push sanctions against Russia and the conservatives, you know, no, Putin's our guy. He was with Trump. You know, all I wanted actually out of that whole thing was because I, I mean, I supported Trump's notion that we should just have peace with Russia. Like what is all, what's going on here? (laughs) And I was actually kind of blown away by the media response You know, that was no, no, you know, Putin's this evil, bad person who stole the election and all this. And it was like, I mean, that's where I see the American oligarchs coming in, pissed at Putin for taking their honeypot after the Cold War and then just, you know, hammering him to try to get uh, all those all that access back, you know, (laughs) but most a lot of Americans are sucking it up. And then it's funny because then you either have the Americans that hate Putin or the Americans that love Putin based on their political identity. And the nuance of the conversation that we're trying to have here today is completely lost. You know, you never get, you never get to this place with it. I mean, I I think you knocked it out of the park. I almost have nothing to add to that, but what I'll say two quick things. So if you're someone who um, like doesn't like the fact that Trump just wanted to talk with Putin. Like that's insane. <laughs> right. <I know. laughs> why, what? Then why even have a government? Like let's just kill each other. Like let's just yeah. literally start shooting missiles at each. I know. <laughs> make any sense. Okay. Not only is it insane, but these same people will be like, it's so it's so nice and pragmatic that Barack Obama went to Saudi Arabia and met with like the Sultan who like executes wizards. You know, <laughs> like. It's like, give me a break. Like, I'm not I'm not going to defend Russia's human rights record, which is not amazing, but it's definitely better than Saudi Arabia. Just stop being stupid. Yeah, the the hypocrisy is so self-evident. Yeah. 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 So this idea that that we're that U.S. foreign policy is hostile to Russia for humane or moral reasons is so ridiculous and laughable (laughs) that it's just hard to take people seriously like i don't like putin because like he's bad on freedom of the press every single government is bad on 
free freedom of the press, even the United States. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I wish not more the people reason. would see that. Like, of course it's bad. Of course it's bad, but it's not the reason. So what is the reason? It's not that. So stop pretending it is, you know? On the other side, on the other side, like you pointed out, there are people who worship at the feet of Putin and think he's like this amazing, like, you know, sort of bulwark of conservatism and, you know, like anti-wokeism and blah, blah, blah. Guys, I don't know what to tell you, but like, that's not, that's not the case. I just, yeah. this is not, I'm sorry to say it. Like I could, we can get it. It's a whole other conversation. Like we could talk for several hours about it, but Russia is not like, it's a socially conservative country that has, I guess what you would call traditional values. And I know that that's appealing to a lot of conservatives and that's fine. But the reality is that like, it's not as, uh, you know, it's not as amazing and cool and conservative as you think. Yeah. And uh, like, there's a lot of censorship here. There's actually a lot of PC stuff. Like, for example, if you're hmm. one of these people who are like, I like Putin because he's really good on immigration. And like, he's not afraid of saying when like an immigrant does a bad thing or whatever. You know, there's a lot of these Putin guys who will say that. Uh, in Russia, they have this whole thing where it's like, you'll have people coming in from Central Asia and they might be like accused of a crime. And the media will be told by the government not to even uh, report their nationality. So it's like the same, the same stuff like anywhere else. So if right. that's like your thing where it's like, oh, like I like Putin because he's so anti-woke and isn't afraid to like talk about these issues or whatever. You know, it's not even my stuff, but it's just not true. And there's a lot of reasons to be like, Putin is just a normal dude. He's not that special. So mm. anyway, I mean, it's like, that's like a whole other convo, but. Right. Yeah. I mean, interesting too, that like we're having this cancel culture here in the United States, because again, so many Americans feel like, you know, we have this free press and, or, or this free society, although hopefully that's getting eroded in the last, and now we can get more into the COVID stuff because we're clearly seeing not just the cancel culture around political correctness, but then, you know, anyone that disagrees with the dominant COVID narrative uh, is getting hammered and censored and silenced as well. So I, you know, I hope if anything comes out of this conversation, actually, I hope my listeners kind of realize. I think that the Soviet, or I want to call it the Soviet Union. Still, it's funny. Uh, the the Russia and uh, and America are probably pretty similar in They're terms. Really of, similar. They're yeah, really, really yeah. similar. Right. I've lived in a few different countries, and Russia's really similar to the United States. That is really. so funny to hear. I mean, that is yeah. really amazing. Yeah. Um, well, so why don't we, what, yeah, why don't we get into the COVID thing? Because, um, I was telling you before the interview, I think I was actually like, I started reading your stuff and then I was just, I almost, you know, I, I almost got, you know, I was pretty disappointed, frankly, like I had hopes because from what I had heard, uh, Putin probably was standing up against, you know, I mean, at least, at least they had their own vaccine, the Sput the, the Sputnik vaccine and, uh, and they weren't pushing the big pharma vaccines, but then in your work, we're seeing all this, you know, correlation and they're actually working together behind the scenes. I had heard that, um, you know, they tried to do the, the Vax passport thing in Moscow with the QR codes and all the mandates and, and so many citizens just didn't go out then, you know, wouldn't shop at the, at the stores that the store owners had to be like telling the government to stop doing this because it was crushing their businesses. Uh, and so I was hoping that there was enough popular sentiment there that these kind of mandates, and I think even, uh, like in your work, you know, initially they tried to roll out the vaccines and really there wasn't a lot of people that were taking it voluntarily. Like, I mean, the exactly. Russians, I think, I think probably the Russian people, if I was to, to point out a difference 
between Russians and Americans, I think the Russians have a more healthy uh, a healthy skepticism of the government <laughs> than the Americans. Totally, Americans totally. tend to be so naive. Like you totally. don't think the government's you know pulling on these shenanigans? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. That's hundred hundred percent correct. I think you're totally right on that one. Yeah, cool. I mean, look, guys. I mean, the the COVID stuff in Russia is so fascinating, and you can go down so many bizarre rabbit holes. Yeah. But if you really want the like five minute summary, um, the situation in Russia is basically nobody here over. Oh, people are overwhelmingly against getting Sputnik. There are other vaccines, but they're almost never used. They're not worth talking about. Uh-huh. Uh huh. They're overwhelmingly against. Getting Sputnik. I mean, you know, if it's if it's a voluntary choice, most Russians don't want it. That's just the reality. We have the data. There's just no denying it. Uh, enormous majority of Russians do not want these QR codes, which I often refer to as cattle tags. Yeah, it's like something. Even even state media opinion polls done by like Ria Novosti or whatever show it's like seventy percent. But there are polls with more than a million respondents online that show it's upwards to ninety one percent. Wow. 91 with, wow. with like 1.4 1.4 million votes. 91% said no. What's disappointing about the situation in Russia is that if you're going to have any country on earth that is more that's better positioned to say no to the covid madness, it's Russia. Yeah. And and any government that did it would be like the most revered respected worship government in russian history i mean putin could declare himself emperor for life tomorrow if he just came out and said we're not doing anything with the vaccines if you want to take it whatever we're never going to do the stupid cattle tags we're not closing down your shop we're not harassing anyone deal with it he would be like there'd be no touching him he could do whatever he want he could just like start randomly shooting people in the street and no one would care you know like just totally untouchable but unfortunately, what we're seeing is the exact opposite has happened. So starting in June, uh, June 2021, Moscow, the city, was the first to roll out um, a compulsory vaccination policy, which it, it's not for the whole city, but for certain uh, industries. Like if you work in certain kinds of businesses, 60% of the workforce in that business had to be vaccinated. <clears throat> and then about, uh, about a week, two weeks after that, they introduced QR codes for restaurants. Which was such a disaster, and as you mentioned, uh, Russians basically just boycotted restaurants. They just didn't go to them. And and two weeks later, about two and a half weeks later, two hundred businesses had gone out of business in the city, which is wow. like devastating. Yeah. And they were forced to cancel the QR codes because an election, a state Duma election, was coming up. Parliamentary elections were coming up in September, and th- we were talking about a situation that was so uh, inc- incendiary that. Even with Russia's not very good history of elections, they were probably thinking like, "We can't even rig this if we keep this up. Like, there's no way to support <laughs> right. us yeah. if we don't if we don't cancel this. We're, we, there's no way to fake it. There's no way to fake this one. Right. So they canceled it. And then what's really interesting is right after the Duma elections, which were unfortunately a little bit suspicious, they 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 introduced. Compulsory vaccination across Russia. Every single region in Russia has it now. And many, many parts of Russia now has have QR codes. And wow. it was introduced right after the election. So right, right after the Russians go to the polls, they don't get to vote for another five years. And now they're now they're pushing all the stuff that nobody wants. And the Russian government knows that nobody wants it. 
and they did it after the election. Classic. So the question is why? Why did they do that? And uh, unfortunately, and this is just the facts, you don't have to, I mean, if you don't believe me, I can send you the links. I'm open to discussing anything I say. Uh, Vladimir Putin has, is on the record saying that he supports the introduction of QR codes at the national level. So right now they're discussing legislation in the state Duma. So regions, specific regions and cities have introduced QR codes. So for example, in St. Petersburg, incredibly, they have a very, very strict QR code system that's being used for almost all businesses in that city right now, which is incredible. I mean, it's horrifying. Uh, and in other parts, like in Kazan, they have them. Uh, many other parts of Russia are using these cattle tags. And so right now, uh, the state Duma at the national level, the national parliament is uh, working on legislation to make them basically mandatory for all regions of Russia. Uh, and and this, this legislation has been postponed it was supposed to be passed actually last month. It was supposed to be passed recently. They keep pushing it back. But Putin is on the record. He says he wants it. Mm-hmm. He's like, there should it should be done in a humane way to keep people safe. But yeah, we should definitely do it. Another thing about Putin is that he's done this really, really cynical uh, game where he basically plays good cop, bad cop. So, for example, with compulsory vaccination, on multiple occasions, he says, I'm personally against compulsory vaccination and then uh and then the regions specific regions will pass these compulsory legislation uh decrees and the kremlin will issue a press release being like oh yeah this is great like great job guys like keep it up and so he what he does is that he just he just distances himself from all the bad you know he doesn't want to be directly connected to all the bad right say personally i'm against it but if regions want to do it that's their choice. Is it really their choice? I don't think so. I think that there's right. a lot of pressure from the federal. They're just making the regions play bad cop. Kremlin is good cop. Region is bad cop. So I think we're seeing the same thing with, in, in some ways with the QR code. They, they, they might end up doing it at the regional level and Putin being like, well, you know, it should be done in a humane way. And then the regions do it and blah, blah, blah. Who knows? But another thing about Putin is that Not only does he support the vaccination of children, which is unthinkable, in my opinion, especially, I mean, we can get into the specifics of Sputnik. It's not what people think. Yeah. Uh, Not only does he support the vaccination of teenagers, like between 12 and 17, which has started recently in Russia, he wants to vaccinate children as young as two years old. As young as two. That's just totally unacceptable. This is totally like, it's unfathomable how any any semi-sane person would want to do that. So he's just not good on these issues at all. And when he does say something that that people like point to and say, oh, look, like he doesn't like compulsory vaccine. He's just lying to you. He's just playing the cynical game where he says, I'm personally against it, even though it's happening all over my country and I'm the president. I'm not going to take responsibility for it. It's like, does he have any personal responsibility for what happens in his own country? Like, will people like when, you know, in the United States, people are happy to hold Biden accountable for like policies even when it doesn't not, even when it's not even his direct fault They're like look at what biden has done blah 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 putin is the head of the russian federation people should be like what's this guy doing like why isn't he taking a stand against this stuff he's doing the exact opposite of what people think he's doing 
Right. He's playing a very, very cynical game here, and a lot of Russians are very, very unhappy. If you are listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of The Shift with Doug McKinty. For access to the full feature-length versions of the podcast, go to www.theshiftnow.com and subscribe for the audio version for just $6 a month. Access the full-length episodes in video form through rockfin.com by subscribing at the Shift with Doug McKinty landing page. For $9.99 a month, you gain access not only to the Shift, but also all other premium content material hosted on the platform. Find out more at www.theshiftnow.com backslash store. Detoxify your body, decolonize your mind, make the shift. Well, right on, right on, Riley. Uh, I really yeah. appreciate it, actually. You know, I've been... I've been following this stuff for, you know, for years about about Russia and and what was going on in Syria and what was, uh, you know, what's going on in the Ukraine. And 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 I uh, I haven't really put together an interview like this one that could have this kind of uh, conversation about all that history. Um, So I really appreciate you coming on and appreciate the work that you're doing. Uh, and appreciate that you know you've got the the depth of perspective to be able to really um, really see this from a lot of different angles and, and still get the big picture out of it. So, um, well, I had have... a great time talking. I hope we do it again. Honestly, yeah, it's really so- great. Sounds good. Yeah, I'd love to have you back for sure. Um, do you want to tell people about you about um, you know where they should go to find out more information about uh, your your stuff? Yeah, your work? so I'm on sub I'm on Substack. It's Edward Slav Squat. This is Edward and then Slav Squat.substack.com. Um, if you want, if you're on, I'm not on Facebook, but you can add me on Twitter. I mean, I'm not like big on social media, but please, I would love to have you as a follower, obviously. And mm-hmm. um, I'm always, I, my email is publicly available on my Substack. I usually respond to anything I get on Twitter. I'm totally open. If you have questions for me or concerns or want more information about something I said, please feel free to reach out to me. I usually try to respond to anything that I think is like good faith. So cool. And what's your Twitter handle? Oh, it's just my name, Riley Wagaman. So R-I-L-E-Y-W-A-G-G-A-M-A-N. All right. Well, sounds good, Riley. Thanks a lot. Thanks again for coming on the show. I'll, I'll let people know that they've been listening to The Shift and I'm your host, Doug McKenty, and you can find my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, I am on Facebook. My personal page does better than my podcast page, I think, for <laughs> algorithmic reasons. But so you can just look <laughs> me up at Doug McKenty um, and the shift with Doug McKenty. I'm on YouTube putting more and more stuff up on Odyssey and Rockfin these days, censorship free platforms. Uh, and I'm at D McKenty on Twitter. So thanks, everybody, for checking this one out. Uh, and uh, we'll see you again next week. Thanks again, Riley, for coming on. You have a great day. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yep. Take care. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. That was my interview with uh, American-born journalist Riley Wagaman, now based in Russia. Uh, I was happy to uh, have that interview basically handed to me by uh, my friend Captain Wardrobe. I think he was episode 103. Uh, And um, I'm just able to finally talk to a a Russian insider that uh, could really give a, a nuanced perspective about what's going on in Russia, especially right now, is... The mainstream narrative is continuing to push this whole thing in Ukraine. And uh, I just find it amazing from my perspective that since Putin took over around 2000, uh, he really started to nationalize Russian resources. And yes, the oligarchs came in. But from my interpretation, 
the uh, the Western corporations that were profiting wildly uh, after the end of the Cold War from all the resource extraction that was going on in Russia, you know, they've been very upset with Putin ever since then. Uh, he took a lot of uh, a lot of profits out of the hands of the American oligarchs, uh, and that's why consistently and constantly we're hearing all this anti-Russian propaganda here in the United States. But uh, as Riley points out. The conversation is way more nuanced than that. Um, Putin has done a lot to uh, at least keep, even though, sure, there's an oligarch class in Russia, at least the Russians are in charge of all those resources, all that extra, that profit's not just getting funneled out of the country. And he's done a lot of things in terms of foreign policy uh, that I actually think are quite positive. We talked about the Ukraine. We talked about what was really going on in Crimea, which has just historically been a part of Russia. And the Crimean people really wanted to be a part of Russia. And uh, so what we consistently hear in the United States about how Putin invaded, I mean, it's really not an accurate depiction of what's been going on and what happened in Ukraine, where uh, NATO and Americans, uh, American allies, uh, participated in a coup in the Ukraine because their leader was a little bit leaning towards uh, doing more trading with Russia. And of course, the United States wants to see Ukraine in, in NATO and buying American-made weapons <laughs> and supplying uh, Europe and, uh, and the United States with those resources from the Ukraine. So again, the conversation is just really nuanced what's really going on in Ukraine. Is it uh, American imperialism? Uh, inching closer and closer to Russia being the aggressors in the conflict, which frankly is what I perceive, uh, even though we're, we're constantly bombarded with how, you know, Putin is, is amassing troops at the border and we're, we're going to go into, uh, he wants to uh, invade and take over half of the Ukraine for Russia. Uh, the conversation, again, just a lot more nuanced. Um, so Riley and Riley's work kind of really dives into this and explains a lot of this. Um, what happened in Syria when the U.S. was, you know, Obama's red line, ready to invade. Putin comes in and says, hey, we'll help out, provide air support, uh, and uh, help fight uh, t the terrorism that's taking over in Syria there. And uh, I think that intervention probably saved, you know, tens of thousands of Syrian lives, if not more, that would have been the result of a full-scale American invasion. So there have been some good things that Putin has done. Now, conversely, especially around the COVID issue, where a lot of Americans, uh, pro-Putin Americans, will argue that uh, Putin is fighting the New World Order and, and he's uh, and he's been working against the World Economic Forum and he's not going to impose these mandates and, and we're not going to see the COVID vaccinations and the mandates and the lockdowns and all of that like we're seeing in Europe and in the United States. Well, Riley also provides an alternative to that, and he shows how, well, actually, you know, there are these oligarchs that are uh, in control to a great extent in Russia, that Putin, you know, does have this side of him that cozies up to these people, and they are working closely with the World Economic Forum, and, you know, this whole mandate thing is getting rolled out there just like it is around as much of the rest of the world as they can possibly uh, make it happen here, as we see this whole technocratic Great Reset rolling out uh, basically worldwide at this point. So uh, I just really 
uh, appreciated having this conversation and turning you guys on to his work because uh, I think he'll continue to give this American perspective, but from inside Russia, that's a lot more nuanced, that shows both sides of Putin, uh, and that has this overall analysis of what's going on between Russia and the West that's a little more realistic than just the black and white uh, that we're seeing so often here in the American press, for sure. Um, I've just, I've come across this quote, and I've been thinking a lot about this um, in terms of starting to write my blog, because I get frustrated when we get boiled down in arguments, and I think social media really, uh, it, it, it creates this division and this simplistic argumentative style that lacks so much nuance, uh, and a lot of this lack of nuance comes out in this Russian conversation. And I think the quote that I've been coming across was, a, I think it was a film director, and he said, the lack of nuance is basically the characteristic of a tyrannical society. Once we make things so black and white that we're no longer having these nuanced conversations with respect for people on both sides of the issue, but but also, you know, listening to each other and paying attention to the minutiae of an argument that, that is where people really should be, you know, have the critical thinking skills necessary to make your choice, your own choice about the issue. I mean, we need to just kind of settle down, get off the social media, start reading some of these journalists and bloggers who are really going into detail about the nuances of these conversations that we need to be have, having. Uh, I think our society can move forward in a good way. You know, this division that has become replete Almost every issue, it's turning into a pretty big deal for me. It's one of the reasons why I started writing my blog at the Populist Papers, to try to just be like, come on, people, let's stop doing this. We're, we're arguing very simplistically from both sides, black and white thinking, very unhealthy. Let's get into the nuance of, of each situation. Let's really learn how to use our critical thinking skills. Let's have respect for each other. And this is the only way that we can move forward in unity with numbers, with political power against uh, the technocrats as they're moving forward, like Riley said, basically all over the world, in the United States, in Russia, uh, you know, the World Economic Forum has its tentacles everywhere. So if we're going to fight back against this, we need to learn these lessons. So I just want to thank Riley for coming on the show uh, and having this conversation specifically about Russia, uh, the last 20 years or so of recent Russian history. Um, and providing this more nuanced perspective of Putin that's much less black and white that so many of us want it to be, um, you know, and just so to give us a, a reason to stop digging our heels in so much, listening to the other side and realizing the truth is always, you know, some kind of blend between the two, and at least really learning to use our own critical thinking skills in this more nuanced fashion to make our own choices about what's going on in the world. So again, thanks to Riley for coming on. Uh, you can find out more about the work of Riley Wagaman at www.edwardslavsquat.substack.com, and he'll continue his analysis uh, in terms of what's going on with Ukraine. I'm sure he'll be covering that extensively, and he really has been on top of the whole COVID situation just to show that, like, yeah, I mean, Russians are fed up with this kind of government control, but, you know, the World Economic Forum has its way, and uh, and they're in the thick of it just like the rest of us are. So uh, you can check that out again, uh, www.edwardslavsquat.substack.com. And so thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, next week, I'm going to have uh, education activist Lynn Straw Davenport on. I've already got that one recorded. It'll be coming out very shortly, uh, and we'll be talking about education 
and the applications, the the need to empower local communities in terms of making education decisions uh, in the face of, you know, certainly what's coming down the pike uh, in terms of the social emotional learning, really getting into our kids' psychologies, which Lynn finds very dangerous. And of course, all the blockchain data collection that's coming and that's coming down uh, in order to facilitate all of that by collecting massive amounts of data on our children and, and basically turning them into commodities for this uh, impact investment scheme that we're, we're also seeing implemented as we speak. So uh, you can go to www.theshiftnow.com, uh, find all my work there, uh, subscribe to the newsletter, uh, think about subscribing, six bucks a month for the feature-length versions of the episode, uh, and also uh, I'm announcing my new blog, my personal blog, thepopulouspapers.substack.com, uh, where I'm going to continue to try to fight this left-right divide, although um, I'm becoming more and more adamant about my own libertarianism. The first essay that I've written uh, is about is a three-part essay, and it's utilizing this conflict between Alison McDowell and Derek Bros to really tear into the left-right paradigm uh, and talk about how I think libertarianism really is very accepting of all of these collectivist lifestyles as long as they're voluntary. I mean, this is kind of the thing that's frustrating for me is that I see the left-right divide where uh, it's preventing people from really getting together. The libertarians just aren't in conflict, um, but the more progressive-minded that people are, the more they just want to fight any kind of, uh, any kind of solutions that are talking about real freedom that may allow people to engage in what are traditionally considered free market solutions. So hopefully we'll be able to keep plotting forward. Um, and I appreciate that all of you certainly listening to this are working on making the shift and hopefully working towards unifying the cause in terms of the technocratic resistance so that we can uh, really develop that kind of political power that we need to to overcome uh, what these uh, upper classes are clearly seeking to impose this system of, of real serious total control that if it happens, uh, it's going to be really difficult to change. So thanks again for listening, uh, and I'll see you all again next week. Take care.